morning. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to New Life. Um, as John mentioned, we gather together for the glory of God in the gospel of grace. And that uh, fellowship time, you know, the MBTI thing, you could hear all the extroverts were just like already talking even before John finished. And you're like, oh, we don't even need to hear the rest. Let's just talk about MBTI and then about everything else in life. And the introverts were quietly shrinking into their seats, just wondering when is fellowship time going to end? You know, it's going on forever. Um, we're wrapping up our series in Loving the Outsider today. Um, so it's been an eight-week series with uh, Easter, right in the middle of it, our series through the Book of Ruth. Um, this explores God's love for the insider gone out and the outsider never invited in, as John mentioned. And so we will be wrapping up that series today. Uh, before we wrap it up, how about I pray for us, and then we'll get straight into the message. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you have faithfully spoken your word to us uh, through these eight weeks and through the book of Ruth. We love, Lord, uh, how you have recorded these outsider stories, that we might be able to hear them, that we might be able to um, really empathize with them and to understand the way that you invite in the outsider, God. We love the way you do this because we know that without this, we have no life. And so we turn to you once again this morning, seeking uh, you as the giver of life. We want eternal life with you. We want fullness of life now. And so we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us once again through your word, that you would fill our hearts and that indeed you would transform us, that you would guide us and that you would help us, Lord, to really love you and to seek you through your word. Our prayer this morning is that our hearts will be open, um, even as we close the book of Ruth, that we would understand what it is that you have for us in this message, uh, that we'd be able to carry it forth into the world, indeed starting with new life, um, and then from there to our families, our friends, our coworkers, and to all that we come in contact with. Uh, would you bring your kingdom to bear upon our lives, that we might be changed by you, that we might seek you, that we might glorify you in the gospel of grace. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, we all love a happy ending. You know, we don't really want cliffhanger after cliffhanger. You know, when we watch uh, different movies or TV shows, we hate it when there's no real conclusion uh, to the TV show or to the movie itself. We don't want the villains to prosper as much as we talk about, you know, how we like the bad guys in the movies sometimes. We don't want them to prosper at the end of the day. And we definitely don't want that in real life. You know, we don't want, you know, some warmonger to win the day. And... We want our protagonists to live happily ever after. This is what we really desire. And so as we close the book of Ruth, we reach this pretty satisfactory conclusion uh, for everything that we've been witnesses to thus far in the story. So the first half of that passage that you heard read by John this morning, it finally gives us the good news of Boaz and Ruth getting married. You know, it's been a long time coming, but finally it's happened. They've gotten married. And then we also hear about the, bir the birth of their baby boy. You know, they have a baby boy, and we're really excited for them as well. And then the second half takes us through this genealogy or uh, record of who a person descended from. You know, who are their ancestors? Uh, what does a family tree look like? So let's talk about that first half first. So we saw last week that Mr. What's-His-Name's story ended of his own accord. 
You know, he doesn't figure into the rest of the story here, the rest of the chapter. He doesn't pop up ever again. Uh, nor does he figure into God's plan of salvation. We also see that Ruth has been fully redeemed by Boaz as the family redeemer. So through his wife Ruth, Boaz does end up having his name remembered uh, in Bethlehem and beyond. In fact, it is written in scripture for us that we might be able to know his name even today. Um, just as the elders had prayed last week. You remember this last week. So we see that Ruth and Boaz have a son, and she, he is going to bring comfort to Naomi, um, and will continue to bring her comfort even as she progresses into old age, into an advanced old age. He's going to grow, and we know that as a good son or as a good grandson in Israel, he's going to be dutiful. He's going to make sure that she doesn't go hungry you know, ever again. She doesn't have to face those situations where she's a widow ever again, hopefully. Uh, and in fact, this is not only attending to Naomi's physical and emotional needs, but this grandson becomes a sign of fullness for Naomi. You know, even after she's declared herself at the very beginning of the book of Ruth, empty. She came back into Israel declaring that God has brought her back empty. But here at the end of the book, she is full. Now, nothing could bring back her husband and her children. Okay, let's get that out of the way. You know, in chapter one, we saw her husband and her children die. And, you know, but now she has this daughter-in-law who the people declared is better than seven sons. You know, this isn't just lip service or just like a catchy saying to say. But at this ancient time period, this is an incredible statement to make. When people really desired sons to carry on the family legacy, to carry on the family name, so that their names will be recorded throughout all of Israel's history. They were greatly favored of her daughters, but the people could see Ruth is better than even seven sons. Let's look at that uh, opening verse there, Ruth 4.13. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He slept with her, and the Lord granted conception to her, and she gave birth to a son. So we're told in this opening verse of our passage this morning that the Lord granted conception to her. And it's only the second time in all of the book of Ruth that God's name is kind of said in the foreground. You know, God's actions come to the foreground. Usually, you know, otherwise, he's been quite mysterious. He's been sovereignly working. And we know this, you know, as uh, good Christian people with a little bit of theology, we know that he's been sovereignly working. And yet it's been in the background. The only other exception being in Ruth chapter 1, verse 6, when we're told that God had paid attention to his people's needs by providing them with food. And here, he clearly pays attention to Ruth and Naomi's needs by providing them with a son. Now, a question for you. Is it perhaps a bit revealing about who we are as people that we don't really recognize God's hand at work until we're told very directly, here is what God is doing? We've seen in the last eight weeks how God has been at work constantly, even if it's in the background. He's been at work constantly. He's sovereignly made all of the things that we've seen happen, working to bring about redemption for his people. But when we're in the midst of hardship, it's really hard to see what God is doing. It's nearly impossible to see what God is doing when we're in the midst of personal hardship. We've seen it in Naomi's story. We've seen the way that Naomi 
raised in the land, raised in this Jewish heritage, still doesn't seem to recognize when God's hand is at work. And we've seen it in the entire people group of Israel themselves throughout the time of the judges. But even outside of hardship, if we're just in the middle of a personal individual story, just like all of us are going through our lives, sometimes it gets hard to get out of the details. It's hard to see the forest for the trees. Have you ever heard that saying? You know, we start examining every individual tree and we forget that we're even in a forest. If we're in the middle of a personal individual story like Naomi's, we find it really hard to zoom out to see what God is doing on a grander scale, unless it's to stop and blame him for things that have gone wrong. We tend to get really caught up in the details, the intricate details of the events of our individual lives, and we can't see what's taking place beyond what we can see. Is this fair to say? Do you agree with this? Yeah? For us today, after eight weeks in the series, we're able to finally see the way that God sovereignly redeemed both Ruth and Naomi. We can see this. We've been talking about it for eight weeks, and so because we've had it drilled into us, we can see this. We see in the first part of this ending that God filled the personal emptiness, and he met the individual desires that each of them had. And this knowledge is very important to us. The knowledge that he meets us individually, it comforts us, it challenges us, and hopefully it transforms us as well. But there's something bigger that he's been pursuing all along too. Something that's not immediately obvious to us. Let's jump back to the opening of our series, the opening of the book of Ruth. Okay, very first verse of the book of Ruth. I'll read it first. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem and Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. During the time of the judges. All of what we've seen throughout this series has been taking place, taking place during the time of the judges. We've talked about this before, right? When there was no king in the land and everyone decided for themselves what is good and what is bad. Right or wrong. Whatever seemed right for them. As the book ends, however, we read this genealogy that tells us about Ruth and Boaz's son, Obed, Obed's son, Jesse, and Jesse's son, David. So in the process of redeeming Ruth and Naomi, God is also making a way for the king that his people don't even know that they need. Remember once again the context of our story. This is taking place during the time of the judges when there's no king in the land. They never even thought about having a king yet. And everyone did as they pleased. God's sovereignty stretched far ahead of Israel's history, planning for the most famous king in Israel to be born in the line of Ruth and Boaz. So God meets the needs of an entire nation of people through meeting the needs of these two individuals. The book of Ruth is not just a story of God's covenant love for Ruth and Naomi. It's the story of God's covenant love for all of Israel, and by extension, 
It's the story of God's covenant love for all of us. Now today, if you are able to step out of your own life for just a moment, okay, you're sitting at New Life, North Rocks, and you have an out-of-body experience, and you look at your life, if you were able to see the cosmic picture of what God is doing, stretching beyond your lifetime, you know, throughout the long swaths of time of our short lifetimes, surely you would stand in awe of God's sovereign plan because you would be able to see beyond your life and see what he's doing through your life. But as it stands, we still do get stumbled day by day by little inconveniences that come our way, by the events of our lives, even while God is so personal that he cares for us in these things as well. But still we stumble. Just for the Christians here, we need to be better at this. Like we need to be better at understanding what God's doing in our lives. Look at your life and see that God is greater than the 80-something years that take place. Some of us live a little bit longer, some of us live a little bit shorter, but God is doing something greater at a much grander scale than just our lifetimes. Even when we hear Naomi's story, we can get so close to what's happening moment by moment that we actually miss God's greater story unfolding behind the scenes. We might have read this passage many times before. Maybe we haven't. Maybe we've never even opened the book of Ruth. But we might have read this ending and thought, ah, good, a genealogy that I can safely skip. Last week, we saw how the elders of the town blessed Boaz. Okay, in verses 11 to 12, all the people who were at the city gate, including the elders, said, we are witnesses May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May be powerful in Ephrathah and your name well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. So these elders look forward to the baby that Ruth and Boaz would hope to have, you know, before they've even had it. Before they've tied the knot, they're looking forward. And they bless Boaz to have a name well-known in Bethlehem. In other words, they're saying, Boaz, we want your name to be made great. Does this sound familiar to you? If you've been with New Life for a while, it might. Okay, it might. It might not. Don't tell me because, you know, it might emotionally harm me. But remember back to last December during our Christmas series, it wasn't that long ago, when we looked at Genesis 12 together, I'll read it for you. The Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God told Abram to leave his land, his family, and promised Abram a great name, that a great nation would come from his offspring, and that all peoples on earth would be blessed through them. 
the blessing of the elders upon Boaz to have a great name, it connects the people listening to this. It links the blessing to all of Israel's history. It's not just a personal blessing here. It's saying you're part of all of Israel's history to those that built the house of Israel. This widens the story for all the people listening, and it should do the same for us as well when we're listening, to help us think bigger, to look beyond our own lives, reminding us that our personal stories are part of a much bigger story that God is writing. After all, what's happening in the story of loving the outsider? Ruth is a Gentile. She's one of the main characters of this story, but she's not an Israelite. She's someone who comes from all the peoples on earth that God was talking to Abram about. She's a Gentile. Those outside of the Jewish people descended from the line of Abram. As a Moabite convert, she's a living fulfillment of God's promise to Abram many generations later. But not only is she a fulfillment, okay, this this part is especially striking. In leaving her land, her relatives, her father's house, and trusting in the kindness of God, what's she doing? What's she doing? She lives out and becomes part of the bigger story that God has written for Abraham. She becomes like Abraham in God's story. And indeed, she becomes part of the bigger story of all of humanity. The genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth shows us that she is an ancestor to King David. And when you witness this, and when you finally understand this, apply it into your life. See what God is doing in your life. Consider how God might be working at such a scale in your life, in the life of our church, and indeed in the life of our whole city. Verse 12 in Ruth 4. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. Who is Tamar? This is one of the strangest and yet possibly one of the most illuminating parts of the elders' blessing upon Boaz when they bring up Tamar. And maybe they do it because Tamar is kind of similar enough to Ruth in that she's also an outsider. Maybe that's why they're reminded of Tamar. She's a Canaanite widow, so she's also a Gentile. And she needed a family redeemer in order to conceive a child, just like Ruth. Like Ruth, in Genesis 38, where Tamar's story takes place, she dressed herself up. Remember, Naomi told Ruth, dress yourself up, go to Boaz. So Tamar dressed herself up to find some way to secure hope and a future for herself because she didn't have a child at this point and she was a widow. But unlike Ruth, Ruth who put all of her cards on the table and said, Boaz, this is what I want from you. Tamar doesn't throw herself upon someone's mercy, but instead she disguises herself as a prostitute to trick her father-in-law, Judah, into sleeping with her so that she could try to conceive a child even if it's by illegitimate means. Yeah, this is, this deserves that kind of uh, response. 
It's alarming. You know, in the end, both Ruth and Tamar have children, and both end up playing a part in God's great plan of salvation. They both play a part. But I read this every time. Every year that I read this passage, I ask, why? Why, God? I hate this part of the story. Why? Why does it have to happen this way? <laughs> if you get married, this is especially disgusting. Like, this is God we're talking about. You know, this is beautiful, glorious, righteous God. This is our holy, beautiful, perfect, sinless God. He can do it however he wants. He can write history however he likes. Ruth, we've grown to like because she's exemplary. She's like, you know, you would take her to meet your parents because you know she's not going to embarrass you. But Tamar, why her? Why Tamar? What about Rahab? Okay, have you ever heard of Rahab? Here's another woman from Israel's history that God uses. Tamar was disguised as a prostitute for her nefarious plan, but Rahab was an actual prostitute. She wasn't just dressed like one, she was an actual career prostitute. And yet she's part of this long family line of Israel. She is Salmon's wife and Boaz's mother. What about David, the most famous king that's still to come? For as much as he is described as the most famous king in Israel's history, as much as he's described as a man after God's own heart, what does he do? He acted no different from the people who grew up during the time of the judges because he saw what he wanted and decided for himself what was good, and he took it. He took Bathsheba when her husband Uriah was away at war serious power imbalance here, by the way. He's the king of Israel, and he had Bathsheba brought to him so that he could sleep with her. Is she going to refuse at this point? Why does God allow himself to be associated with people like this? Let's read this genealogy from Matthew, okay? It's a bit long, so follow along with me and try to remember if you recognize any of these names, okay? Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers, Judah fathered Perez, remember him, and Zerah by Tamar, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. It continues on. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Like it's all, like, all the, you know, disgusting details are here. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. His story is horrible as well. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. 
Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. This is, Manasseh is one of the worst kings that Israel's ever had. You know, he's just the worst. Read a story. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. So this is a time when Israel loses all its land. God's had enough. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shiltiel. Shiltiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Akim. Akim fathered Eliud. Eliud fathered Eliezer. Eliezer fathered Mathan. Mathan fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Messiah. In Matthew's gospel, we find this genealogy, and we find in this genealogy that God not only allows himself to be associated with these kinds of people, he allows his son to be born to these kinds of people. This isn't the end of the story, though, because Jesus is repeatedly criticized throughout his lifetime, throughout his life here on earth, for keeping company with who? Sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. And eventually, he dies, crucified between two thieves. In his birth, in his life, and in his death, he is amongst these kinds of people. The Son of God chose willingly to incarnate here on earth. He chose willingly to be born to absolute poverty in a family tree of some of the filthiest outsiders. He chose willingly to follow the plan to die. Humiliated and alone, crucified as though he was a sinner, even though he was the only righteous one. Why? This whole series, we've talked about the love of God for the insider gone out and the outsider never invited in. But this love, it remains just a concept to us. Just a saying, if we don't dive deep into what this love really looks like. What does this love even mean? And if we don't let that change us. If we don't realize what it truly costs God as the only holy and righteous one to do this, if we don't understand what's in Christ's heart, God associates with sinners. He's born in a line of sinners. He dies among sinners because this is how he saves sinners. Maybe we expect God to be more like us. The ones who stay at a safe distance from outsiders that are unlike us. Those that make us feel uncomfortable. Ruth's story remains outlandish to us because it's not our story. We don't act this way. Like, none of us feel comfortable around outsiders. For Boaz to provide so much barley seed for Ruth and Naomi that they could live, and then agree to redeem them at a great cost to himself, this kind of love lives in the realm of fantasy for most of us. It just remains here on page 
and we can't see it playing out in our lives. We think, this looks good, but I'd rather not pray just in case it really happens. This is why God's love remains in just the place of study notes and Sunday services for a lot of us. Because Jesus identifies with us, but we refuse to identify with his kind of love. This is this kind of love, John 15, 13. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. We feel surprised by Boaz's love for Ruth because it's a kind of social suicide. He's about to lose everything that he knows, this life that he has led thus far. We feel surprised by Ruth's love for Naomi because she's giving up her life for the sake of her mother-in-law. Going so far as to say, I will live where you live, I will die where you die. Your God will be my God. Jesus' love is greater than these. It's a love of much greater degrees for the unlovable, for you and me. For us whose sins are enough to blot out all of the righteousness that we think that we have in this world. It's sin enough to separate us from God forever. But what does John 12, 24 tell us? Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The seed that God was going to raise in Ruth and Boaz, this son, is represented, is signified by this gift of barley seed. We've talked about this before, right? That Boaz gives to Ruth. And here in John, we see a little bit of a different symbol in the seed of wheat that's going to represent Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And unless Jesus dies, there is no redemption for us. Unless the Son of God dies, there's no adoption for us into God's family. This is the ultimate seed for life, where God used outsiders like Ruth in the long line of Abraham and David and Jesus. Jesus' life, meanwhile, the other side of the genealogy, his death on the cross for our sins, the resurrection, it means that we're redeemed into his family. His family, which is cross-cultural. His family, which is cross-generational. And his family, which is still welcoming in outsiders, even today. Last week, we talked about Mr. What's-His-Name, and we saw how he effectively cut himself out of God's plan of salvation. Take heed. The proud those who think that their own good works and deeds will save them, those who think that's what makes up all of their lives, those who depend on themselves, there's no place for them in God's family because they would never lay it all down to seek God's help. They would rather depend on their own strength. They would never accept God's invitation in. God leaves the door wide open and calls us inviting us into redemption, but it takes humility to be able to receive help from him. It's only the humble that will actually put out their hands and receive help. 
to admit that we can't do it on our own. This is precisely why God's love seems to focus so heavily on outsiders. You might feel this the longer that you stay at church. Why is God working so powerfully in that person's life when I'm such a better Christian than them, we might think? It's available to all of us, but oftentimes, outsiders, they find that they can't make any headway in this life. They become desperate enough to try anything, even God. They're downtrodden enough to cry out for help. Jesus Christ is a friend to sinners because we're the ones that receive him. We sinners are the ones that receive him. Those that are holy need not apply, and they never would. We're the ones who know that we have nothing to offer him except for our desperate need. We can only throw ourselves upon his kindness the way that Ruth did to Boaz. So what's the message for us inside the church now? We who are insiders, we must recognize the outsiders among us. We see the redemption that Ruth experiences all throughout the book of Ruth. But we have to remember that she was welcomed in by God through Boaz when she was still an outsider. Welcome in sinners around you when they're still sinners, when they're at their darkest, when they make you most uncomfortable. And ask yourself, are outsiders welcome here at New Life? Do you go to them during our fellowship times? Do you sit with them? Do you speak with them after service? Or is your life so curated that you can't possibly make room for them? Are we the church that's really good at exclusion? Acting like some people don't exist the same way that the townspeople of Israel ignored Ruth's existence when they welcomed Naomi back. We know what these people are worth. Those inside the church, we know what these people are worth. Jesus made this abundantly clear for us, for us personally. He's spoken to us. As Ruth did for Naomi when she clung to her at the lowest part of her life, saying she would never leave her. As Boaz did for Ruth, declaring publicly what he was willing to do for her, redeeming her at great cost to himself. And as Jesus Christ does for us, seeking us out in tenderness when we are weary and sick with sin. He made us into those with eternal value. He changed us, making us part of his family, adopting us into his genealogy. Will you now love the outsider? Let's pray. Father, you loved us at our darkest. You sent your son to seek us out when we are dirty when we are far outside of your house, when we are sick and full of sin. We had no hope of making it back on our own. We still have no hope of making it back on our own. And yet your son Jesus, at great cost to himself, became our family redeemer. 
We see this story at a much personal level in Boaz and Ruth, at a much more individual level. And yet we, yet we see the grand cosmic scale when we zoom out and when we see the work that Jesus did on the cross in his life, death, and resurrection for all sinners. Help us here at New Life to be not those proud insiders that say that we're good, that we don't need that invitation, that we're fine the way that we are. But help us, Lord, to seek you and your grace. Let grace ring in our hearts still. Holy Spirit, we invite your conviction upon our hearts that you would move our hearts, that you would change us, that you would help us, Lord, to look to the outsider among us, to love them, to welcome them the same way that Jesus did for us. For those that still stand outside, for those that look on from the doorway, we ask, Lord, that you would move their hearts and invite them in. We ask, Lord, that you would move the hearts of the sons and daughters here to go to them. Be with us, Lord. Transform our hearts. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.